Um, remember, too, just by way of announcement, we could still use some folks on the Mammoth missions trip and the Ocala missions trip, or not Ocala, the Oaxaca missions trip, and uh, and I think that's about it. So um, that's good. All right, so Philadelphia Church Aids. Let me quickly review where we've been. I won't take long. Hi, Matt. And so um, in the introduction last time we got together, we, uh, and this will help if, Laura, you're trying to catch up on that. I'll just try to, I'll try to hit those. Um, we talked about understanding the time frame. Um, wait a minute. This isn't, hold up. So did we, we don't, I don't have my slides, do I, from the beginning, do I? Yeah. No, I don't. Don't worry about it. That's okay. That's okay. We're good. So we'll get those to you later. Actually, they're online from last week. So uh, does, did the PowerPoint go up? Probably not. On, it's probably not online. No, no, from last week. Well, anyway, so it'll be online, or I'll get it to you later. So forgive me for that. Okay, so tonight we're just picking up. Well, I'll still go through the. I'll still roll through where we were, and then uh, we won't worry about the PowerPoint. I'll just pick up where I left off last week. But last week we talked about the time frame, understanding that church age begins at the close of the Dark Ages and ends at the conclusion of the 19th century, and that period introduced us to the greatest time and missionary activity that the world's ever seen. Um, and so the Roman Catholic Church uh, almost shuts down due to the Reformation. We talked about that and how the Reformers succeeded in bringing Rome to a point of internal conflict and, dis and uh, discredit. We also talked about how the Roman Catholic Church all but disappears from the international public scene in order to concentrate on her future comeback. Um, and then the Bible, uh, point D, was the Bible is back in the hands of the common man. That's probably the greatest advent of the Philadelphian church age is getting the Bible in the hands of the common man. And then we saw that the uh, invention of the printing press was a big deal, that all men could obtain a copy of God's word. That's a little overstated. Initially, not all men could obtain a copy. Um, you know, uh, but by 1900, uh, definitely the proliferation of the Bible was much more prominent. So by the time the end of that church age was, everybody, especially in the United States, uh, you know, we, we were one of the nations that was teaching people to read early on, using a McGuffey reader, King James Bible, Shakespeare, and more classical education. So it had a lot of good results until the Industrial Age came along in the 1880s and we started vocationalizing everybody and dumbing them down a little bit. But, uh, but you know, the, 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 the benefits of the Bible are just unbelievable in regard to education and standardization of language and, and uh, what have you. So God really blessed that. And then, um, so I think we talked about some of that. And then the Bible <clears throat> and Martin Luther's German Bible and the authorized version of 1611 were used to evangelize the world. Uh, and then uh, <clears throat> this time period was blessed with the greatest achievements in music, art, and science, industry, travel, and discovery. And you can see the details in the notes. Atheism, humanism, and evolution, and intellectualism uh, began to counter uh, the movement of God's word to the world. We talked about that as well, and then um, we saw how, uh, you know, uh, during that time, what's come to be known as rationalism really started, you know, cropping up, which was a counteraction to truth, and psychoanalysis, psychotherapy, psychotherapy, therapy, blah, 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 
ultimately comes along in an attempt to replace the wisdom of God given through his word. And uh, cults and pseudo-Christian groups begin to grow uh, and show up uh, in Colossians 2.18. We talked about that. Okay, so we're getting close to where we left off. And then we talked about understanding the text, considering Philadelphia means brotherly love. And I think we talked a lot about that. Uh, the town itself, the city was not a town. The city of Philadelphia was a city that was created by, I forget the fellow's name, but he, he uh, made it for his brother. And... Um, it was all a donut. It was is about the love he had for his brother. So it's interesting how that all came together. Um, and then Revelation uh, three. Let's just pick up our text and look at the text again. And I'll get to the introduction where we left off last week, and we'll go from there. So Revelation chapter three, and we're going to pick it up in verse seven. Revelation three seven. The Bible says in Revelation three seven, and and to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write these things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David. He that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews, and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them uh, come to the worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly, hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in my temple of my God, and he shall go uh, out, no more out, I'm sorry, and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven uh, from my God. I will write upon him my new name, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. All right, so that is the text in which we, we based our, uh, our reading and our understanding of this time period from 1500 to 1900. Now, uh, tonight we're going to look at verses 7 and 8 once again. We spent some time on this last week, but it says, Under the angel of the church of Philadelphia, write these things, saith he that is holy... He that is true, and he that hath the key of David, uh, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast, hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. So um, we are uh, in the midst of, and we talked about last week, uh, and we ran, we're running tight on time. We started talking about how, you know, God is, has... <coughs> um, Oh, wait, we backed up. So we, we, we talked about how Jesus identifies himself as holy and true. And then I took quite a bit of time to talk about possessing the key of David. So David was a man after God's own heart, and he loved you know, God's word. And we talked a little bit more specifically about the fulfillment of, of and what it really means to have the key of David and how uh, it's tied back to Isaiah, to Hezekiah, to uh, the victory over Sennacherib, and to David and his faith. And it's not just having the word, but actually believing it. The nation of Israel had the word during the time of Judges, but they didn't execute on it. It, was, it, took, a day, it took a guy like David, who believed God's word, to actually step out by faith to defeat Goliath. And, and that was the difference. Like, he really believed what the Bible said. And so we took you to uh, the book of... of uh, Isaiah and also uh, to the book of, of Kings and Chronicles to show you 
what happened. Well, I think we just based it all out of Isaiah, actually, and how uh, in, in the time of Hezekiah's reign, um, Sennacherib had Israel pinned down, and it was the key of David, which was literally Jesus Christ coming and, and defeating the armies of Sennacherib. But it was a process of hearing the threats, uh, not being moved by the threats, uh, which was, was dire. I mean, Israel was in a bad situation. And, and then the king himself literally laying those petitions out before the Lord as he hears them from Isaiah. And God just answers this in a few words like, yeah, I got this. I'll take care of it. And the next day it was over. I mean, weeks and weeks and weeks of seizure, months, ends up in just one prayer. God takes care of it. Next day, everything's, I mean, it's a whole other, I mean, just God just, just took care of it. And so uh, there's a lot of uh, wisdom in having that key of David. So he mentions here in the text that it, this, church, this church of Philadelphia had little strength. And you don't need a lot of strength because, you, you know, when we're weak, we're made strong, Paul said. So this, this church is the church of the open door. And um, so let's look at the, the text there, 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 9. 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 9. The Bible says, For a great door and effectual is open unto me, and there are many adversaries. So open doors don't, don't preclude having adversaries, right? So this wasn't a time of um, the persecution. Uh, it did minimize, but it wasn't gone completely. It never has been. But God gave him great favor. Over in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 12, uh, the Bible says there, Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened unto me of the Lord. So God opens doors, and he shuts them, right? Nobody's going to shut a door that God opens, and nobody's going to open a door that God shuts. And uh, let's look at Colossians 4.3. So the church of Philadelphia is not the only church, right, in history that's had open doors. Uh, Paul was getting open doors, and the church of the first century had open doors. And so God is the one who opens the doors, and he shuts the doors. Colossians 4.3, the Bible says, With all praying also for us, that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in bonds. Can you think of a door that God has shut? Like on Jeopardy, there's that music. Ding, 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 ding. Yeah, Noah's Ark, that's one I think of in, in Genesis, right? God shut a door there, and again, nobody can get in. Once he shuts the door, you're not getting in. And so, uh, just a word to the wise, the kingdom of God is getting ready to be taken up, and people need to get in while the door's open. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the door of the sheepfold, John 10 says. So we need to make sure that people are coming in the door, which is interesting, and we'll get to this church age, the Laodicean church age next, but... In that church age, he's standing at the door knocking, and uh, nobody's opening. And so uh, he wants people to come in the door, uh, but not a lot of people are coming to the Word of God, right? They're lacking faith. A lot of religion, but not a lot of relationship with Jesus. And that's the key. The key of David wasn't having a religion. They had religion all the way through the book of Judges. Finally, somebody stepped up and said, you know what? I'm going to have a relationship with God. I'm going to believe what he says and, and act on it. I'm going to live it. And boom. All of a sudden, you got a heart that God can work with. And, uh, and so there's just a big difference in, in how we esteem God's word. If we don't esteem God's word and value it, as it is in truth, the very words of God, um, 
well, then the doors are going to shut, right? And we're going to shut them ourselves, which is what's happening. We're allowing intellectualism to box God out. And so we change his word. We alter God's word. It messes up with the deity of Christ and all kinds of doctrines. But we would never, we'd never admit that because, you know, then our book sales would go down. So, um, and so it's a problem. But anyway, moving on. So God has opened the door to the world during this church age. I, I'm, I've gone, I'll, get, I'll get to Laodicea next time. So anyway, so God's, he, has, he has opened the door to the world during this church age. And um, as opposed to the church of the closed door, which I just mentioned in Revelation 3.20. So for you guys that are on notes, there you go. The church of the closed door is the, is the church age we live in now. And, and so that's uh, pretty convicting. So is it so? Yes, ma'am. Uh, I was likening it. That's a good question. So the question is, how can the door, if the door is not closed yet? Okay, so I'm, how can the door be closed to this age? So, good question. So I'm talking about two doors. Uh, one is a metaphor from the Noah's Ark. Before the judgment came, God shut that door, and the door was shut. And once that door shut, so without giving all my cross references, I was just rolling. I was actually had in mind when I said that Second uh, uh, Thessalonians chapter two, uh, where God sends a strong delusion, and uh, and the people that that uh, don't receive the love of the truth today will not have a chance in the coming tribulation. The door of grace will be shut. That's reference number one. The second reference I made to the, which does sound confusing because I turn right around and say the door's shut. Okay, so that reference I'm making is to Revelation chapter 3, and I wasn't clear. So Revelation chapter 3, uh, in, in uh, verse um, um, 20, Revelation 3.20 is, is in reference to Jesus standing at the door and knocking. And, and that is addressing the church, our, our fellowship and relationship with the church. We're shutting the door. Uh, to God, through the Word of God. That's why we don't have the faith of Philadelphia. So I'm mixing my metaphors, and I'm using the same metaphor, being the door, and, uh, and so that is confusing. So thanks, for, actually, thank you for pointing that out, because I'm sure there's other people that would miss what I was trying to connect there. And so, yeah, so when I'm talking about the, the first door, I was talking about God shut a door, and that door was the, to the ark. And once that door was shut, uh, it wasn't open. So that opportunity to escape the wrath was over. I mean, you're going to drown. If you're not on the ark, you're done. And so if people don't get saved today, they're not going to, you know, they're not going to make it, according to Second Thessalonians 2, because if they don't receive the love of the truth, then they'll perish. Uh, that's Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse, let's see. Second Thessalonians 2, 10. And you can just kind of read that. It deals with the coming time of uh, tribulation, actually, and the, and the uh, rise of Antichrist, so on and so forth. So, uh, so that time is a bad time for people. Uh, if you hear the gospel today and, don't, and reject it, there, you know, there are people that are minded to think, well, I'll, I'll just, you know, I'm going to get my gun, I'm going to get my sea rations, and I'm going to go down here to you know, the next county. I'm going to go to Bates County and I'm going to go hide out in the woods and there ain't nobody going to bother me. Yeah, whatever. And so you'll be the first one probably to sign up and take the chip, take the mark, whatever is it going to be. So so uh, anyway, it's going to be crazy. So 
Yeah, that, uh, th- that's, if you re- reject the easy out right now, you're not going to get an easy out later, and you're probably going to get out. So, so that's pretty ominous. That door's going to shut. So that's the first one. Second, though, is uh, in, uh, in, in, when we get to Laodicea, we will talk about how Jesus is desiring our relationship, our fellowship, and, and the church is boxing him out. So it's a different, different situation. Where this door, this door to the world was open, uh, we have all the resources in the world right now to reach the world. And we're not, I'm not saying we're not trying, but we're not, with all the resources, I don't know that we're making as big of an impact as we need to. And so, okay, that's a good question. So let's move along to point three there. Um, <clears throat> so this church has kept the word of God, which means they had the word of God, right? If you keep it, which is what the text says uh, in the, in the Revelation chapter three, that means you've you have it. You can't keep what you don't possess, right? So they, they possess the word of God. The angel of the church of Philadelphia write, these things saith the, uh, he that uh, is holy, uh, he that is true, and that hath the key of David, he that openeth no man shutteth. Verse 8, I know thy works, behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it, for thou hast little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. So during this time, and obviously before that, there's been many who kept God's word and died as martyrs. But specifically, uh, in the English language, the word was, was certainly kept. So this is a time when the Bible texts from Antioch, uh, Syria, were translated into German, Martin Luther's uh, German Bible, and English uh, in the King James Bible. That's why you got a lot of Saxon uh, words as well in the English language that have come in. And over 800 uh, various languages around uh, the world. So the process of having a perfect word, by the way, just uh, especially in our climate today, with um, you know, first of all, when we talk about church history, it's awful. It's often seems so Eurocentric, uh, but that's the direction the Spirit of God has been moving. It's not that He leaves out Asia. There's also church history. It's interesting when I teach in Asia. I've taught in Asia church history, and I've studied what was going on in Asia, and there's a lot of parallels. So God, actually, this, these templates fit all around the world. It's kind of cool how that works. It's harder to find resources, though, um, to study that stuff out. And so, um, but in regard to the English Bible, uh, in uh, 1611, of course, King James uh, allowed, and not only allowed, but you know, authorized, meaning he made this mandate to have a Bible uh, produced in the English language, and of course the King James was assembled at Westminster, uh, or uh, um, Cambridge and Oxford, and uh, the King, as we call them, you know, the King James gang, the the, the translators, not that had nothing to do with Jesse James or anything. Um, uh, they came together, and uh, God, they did not know they were coming up with the perfect word of God. But they, by God's providence, God brought the word together, and it was, and the word of God was perfected. Now, there's a process uh, that we need to remember in preservation, and let's let's look at uh, Psalm chapter 12, and verse six. So, well, we'll look at the whole chapter. Really, this is a good chapter to meditate on today. Um, it's a good chapter to meditate on any day, but it's very relevant to where we live. Um, so, David is crying out, "Help, Lord." For the godly man ceaseth from the uh, for the faithful fail from among the children of men. So uh, he's crying out for help, and he says, "They speak vanity; every one with his neighbor, with flattering lips and with a double heart do they speak. 
The Lord shall cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaketh proud things, who have said with our tongue we will prevail, and with our lips uh, our own, <laughs> we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? So there's this attitude that, you know, we take possession of ourselves, which is very much uh, against God. God's the one who created us. Uh, for the oppression of the poor, for the uh, sighing of the needy, now will I arise, saith the Lord. I will set him in safety from him that puffeth at him. And then he says this in verse, verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words. Notice it's not generically. It's specific words. Right? Not just kind of like the general idea. The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times, thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. The wicked walk on every side when the vilest men are exalted. And so there's a war against the word, and there has been since Genesis with, the, with the Lucifer falling and then tempting Adam and Eve in the garden. Uh, and, there's, and there will be until Jesus puts all authorities down and takes over authority. And so you see here in verses 6 and 7 that the words of the Lord are pure. You wouldn't think that the words of the Lord are not pure. But the issue isn't the inspiration. So when God speaks his word, is it, is it right? And let me ask you, yeah, of course it is. And nobody in the world would claim that God's inspiration is wrong, I don't think. I mean, if they did, then whatever. So, uh, so inspirited, right? It just means it's spoken. That's just when I'm when you're. That's the God's word is spirit, and so it has been spoken. <clears throat> so when we talk about the word of God being preserved, we're not really talking about how it being spoken audibly. We're talking about the words, the words that we have in the Bible that have been preserved. It's been purified seven times, and in verse seven, it's not talking about inspiration. It's talking about preservation. I will preserve them. How, oh. Well, how does God preserve his word? Does he do it in the clouds? Does he do it in the trees? Does he do it, you know, in the rivers? <laughs> you know, well, he's given us a written word. He's given us a written language. And so he's preserved his word, plural, specifically the words. He's not just, not just the general ideas. And he has preserved his words for us. And, he, and David says, from this generation, forever. So David is in the, so there was a time, right, before the law of Moses that, you know, literally, Jesus would just show up. Angel of the Lord would show up, and they'd, he'd speak to him, or they'd have a vision or a dream or whatever. But with the advent of Moses, God began to write the law, right? And so progressively, God continued to add to his words. And so the issue of preservation, just and I'm not going to get into this too deep, but it is part of what we're talking about here, and I want to touch on it biblically, because there's a lot of people who don't understand the issue of preservation. So... Because today, most everybody will agree that, oh, God's words are inspired. Oh, okay, great. And then the next step is, well, do you have God's words? Like, are they preserved? So, we're, so let me ask you all. When I say the words of God are preserved, where would I tell you to find them in English? Right. Not just the Bible. I would say specifically the words of God are found in English in the King James Bible. Uh, not just because it came from the Texas Receptus, but just because it, the Bible itself, um, and this is going to be considered circular reasoning, but it does define itself. So it, it is, you could just take it from Genesis to Revelation, put it together, and this is the words of God. You, I don't believe you can find a mistake, one in it. It's preserved perfectly. Okay, so, um, and it was a process. The English language wasn't even, it was in formulation. 
when Wycliffe put his first Bible together, right? So it wasn't just, you know, that, you know, English is the, is the language. God was working the process of preserving, and still is in other languages, his word and those languages. So I don't read other languages, so, you know, I'm not ever going to tell someone in another language they do not have God's words preserved. Um, but I tell you, I just got off the phone with somebody this week in another country, and they've got a good translation um, from the same text, the TR, and I need to talk to you, Bob, about this. I forgot. I'm glad I'm bringing this up. And they want us to get a parallel English King James Bible laid out next to their text. And I'm not going to say the country right now because it's a closed, semi-closed country. And so um, we need to work on that. I need to talk to you about that. Because they want to look at the King James text and lay it up against their, their I almost said the name, their text in the country that they're, that they're in. And I'm like, that's a great idea. Let me, and I told him, this was yesterday morning. I'm like, I will check into that. And, and I actually will, I will follow up on that. If you're watching online, I'm still working on it. And uh, we will get that taken care of. But the reason I say that because um, the, this, they, they even recognize what you teach when you come to our country, the things that you guys deliver. Man, we want, it, we want to get it. Where do you get that? We get it out of this Bible, Right. If you want to learn about the kingdom, the distinctions, for instance, of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, are you going to get that out of a, any other English translation? No, you're not going to get it. You're definitely not going to get it from a paraphrase. But even the King James Bible is going to butcher that. And, or the King James. Even the New King James Bible is going to butcher those things. Uh, and it muddies all of that. Um, and that's, it's, it's unfortunate. So, so there's some precision. There's accuracy. Because this is God's word. It's preserved. You don't have to believe that. You just need to try it, right? And if you got a better translation in English, let's lay it down and look at it, you know. But uh, at the end of the day, uh, we're going to hold the fast of the, the authorized version because it's been preserved. Now, let me ask you this. If it's not preserved, so let's say you say, Brian, I love the NIV. I think that's the preserved word in English. Okay, I'm not going to argue with you. If that's what you believe, that's your conviction, all right? Um, that's fine. At least you have a word in English. But a lot of, but honestly, most people, you know what they're going to, what scholars are going to tell them? You don't have it in your language. It's in the original autographs. That's what they're going to tell you. It's in the original autographs. So really, you don't have the words of God. They're in the original document. And you listen to that, and you're like, oh, that kind of makes common sense. It's in the original documents. So then you got a copy. And how do you know that your copy's right? Because it could have scribal errors. And, you know, then that's when all the doubt starts to come in. Well, number one, God said, I will preserve my words. Uh, but it's also dishonest <coughs> because no one has the original autographs. They, they don't. You do not have the original autographs. There's not, I mean, we have a lot of texts from close to that time period. But to my knowledge, we don't have one original. We don't have one letter from the Apostle Paul that he literally wrote by hand. I don't know that we have one. Right? We have some pieces of text that, you know, early going back to the early Syriac or what have you, in the scriptoriums, I should say, maybe. Maybe, first century, some texts and stuff. But we don't know that Paul actually wrote that particular piece. So we don't really have the original autograph. So we're depending on a. Okay, okay well, Brian, this, listen. Your problem is you're from the Midwest and you're from Missouri and you want to show me, right? You're, you're a show me person. I get it. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to study the original languages, right? Uh, meaning Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic. And we're going to tell you, you know, after our scholarly, uh, you know, work is done, what the Word of God says. Because really, 
you can trust us. And you're not really, you know, come on, you're not as smart as us. So we'll tell you what the Bible says. Now, the problem you have with that is if you go, if you do this, and you can do, I've done this, so I'm not just talking like, you know, well, I'm not telling you something I haven't literally done. So you go get a, Greek, a, a Nestle's Greek New Testament, let's, for instance, and you start laying out verses, and you, and you will find problems, First John 5, 7, let's say. And uh, you look at that verse, and then you, uh, and you go and you look at a Greek New Testament. They're gonna not, not only will they attack it in the notes and say, well, you see, and that's dishonest, by the way. They will say it's not in the original. This will be in the notes. This Erasmus found, uh, the, the, the standard scholarly answer is that Erasmus found this text, in the, and uh, he was forced to put it in because the church wanted it in there, and so he scribbled it in one of his texts, and it's found its way into the received text, and that's how you got it in your King James Bible, and that's why we attack it in all the modern translations. That's, I'm just giving you the thumb note. That's what they say. And then when I have an HBI class and I bring this up and have them bring me back, that's what all my students say. And then I was like, well, guess what, guys? You're all wrong. Because there's actually like nine copies from the, I think it's nine or six copies from the second century that says it just like our King James Bible in italic. Old, that's, that's the old italic. Um, not, we're not talking about Jerome's Latin Vulgate before that. And, they, and they've got pieces of it. I mean, it is not the only text. Now, it may be the only Greek text, but there's italic, right? So Paul, Rome, Paul was in Rome. We know about Rome. There's a lot of Bible preaching going on in Rome, right? And, uh, and guess what? There's, there's old scripture that has 1 John 1, 9, or not 1, 9, 1 John 5, 7, just like, I mean, several from the second century, all right? Not that I'm going to oldest is best. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. It's, that's not exactly an honest argument. So you'll also go through the notes of, of uh, those New Testaments, and then they'll tell you at the bottom, uh, they themselves, this is the best rendering in their opinion, second best, third best, and then down here, number four, five, six, is, well, this is conjecture. And interestingly enough, more than one time, several times through your modern translations, after 1900 forward, the Odyssey and Church Aids, you'll look those verses up, and they won't be right, and you'll look it up, and guess what? Conjecture, typically to support the doctrine of baptism regeneration, uh, is found in your Bible. And so uh, it's usually leaning toward baptism regeneration, which for those of you who don't know what that means, it means you need to be, you're not baptized, or you're not saved through, by grace through faith in the finished work of Christ. You're, you're saved through baptism, a work. You're, you're working your way to heaven because uh, they're coming from a background in a works-based salvation, right? So, so that is a lot of what, a lot of, and, and a lot of the guys that put those translations together initially, that's the background they come from. So that's what their, their Bibles say. Even though it is not the, the it is not a true representation of a preserved word. All right, are you guys tracking with me on what I'm talking about? All right, so I don't want to get off on all of that. Other than it's, it needs to be mentioned because right now, if you stand in a pulpit like I do and say, you know what, we hold to the authorized version as the absolute standard in English, and that's that's it. So I mean, it's like you are a nutball. You're crazy, man. Right, and so it's like, okay, why am I crazy? Do you have a better English translation than this? Bring it on. Let's look at it. You think I haven't looked at other translations? Yeah. As a matter of fact, you take the New King James and try to and try to run the word tabernacle for the human body. Jesus is very clear in the New Testament, or the you know God through the authors there, which is Jesus, tells them you know this is our tabernacle. Oh, we got to change that to tent. You just blew the whole thing. A tent isn't a tabernacle. There's something going on with a the tabernacle. That doesn't go on a tent. 
right? And there's worship in the, in the Bible. So that using Bible words are important. Anyway, little things like that just drive me crazy. And, and a lot of those are 50-cent words that they put in there, too, that aren't necessarily wrong words, but they're not better. The Bible, the, the King James Bible is written more, actually, and anyone knows this, by the way. This, you don't have to be, everyone knows that's a scholar of English language, that the, that the apex of the English language is the Shakespeare. That's why when you learn Shakespeare, you don't, you don't dumb it down. Did I ever have this discussion last week? Okay, so I'm repeating myself. So you, you, want, you want the pure word of God. You may have to learn thee and thou, and you may have to take some words that are no longer circulating in the same way, like conversation. But you know what? Ephesians 4 covers that. That's why God gives us pastors and teachers. And you may also have to humble yourself and learn that things like britches and vittles are not just words that your, your Missouri kinfolk said back in the country, that those are actually Bible words used at the apex of the English language. <laughs> so I had all these words that my, my family would use that I would think, you know, your britches and your this and that and your vittles and all that, you, it sounds like the Beverly Hillbillies. Well, guess where they get those words? They get them right out of the King James Bible. And so... Uh, so they're not, it's not, not as, they're not as back, all oh, my relatives aren't as backward as I may have thought, huh? So, uh, yeah, Ron. Yeah, yeah, a lot of, they kind of, and they don't let you know that there's several versions of that. It, Ron was making a comment that uh, it's dishonest to, when they bring, they update the versions of the Bible, uh, the newer translations, and they don't tell you that they've updated it. So they just kind of do it on the sly. So, so, so in Proverbs or Psalms 12, it says that God will preserve his words. And in this time of church history, that's what happened. So uh, you have a list here of six Bibles preceding uh, King James's um, edition here of the, of the King James Bible. So you have the Wycliffe Bible in 1382. So Wycliffe, uh, he did not use the TR. It wasn't even available to him. So he used Latin Vulgate. Yes, yeah. Oh, sorry. There we go. So he used the Latin Vulgate, and uh, that causes some people problems, but it shouldn't because God uses human instrumentation all the time, and he can bring a pure word out of anything. Oh, by the way, before I jump off into, the, into this process, so I just want to mention this, and I've already mentioned it before, but maybe someone's just tuning in. The issue of preservation is not just a New Testament issue. You see it in the Scripture itself. You see it with uh, the first copy of the Ten Commandments was busted and broken, and so God had it reconstituted. So the the, the, the ones that that, uh, that Moses went up and reconstituted, he actually it, it says he hammered it out. I got a whole message on that where he used human instrumentation, but he says I'm going to give it to you. Well, he did. He gave it to, to Moses, but Moses had to hew it, and so God preserves His word. You know, what did, what did he, what he made a mistake? Well, he didn't. God preserved it. And then not only that, we don't have that copy. That's what I'm saying. You don't have the original tablet of the Ten... You don't have the original copy of the Ten Commandments you, or Leviticus or Numbers, right? We have a copy. The Masoretic text is what we hold to. It's very accurate. And they have found consistently in Hebrew text, because they counted every letter, I mean, very meticulous, uh, that the Word of God in the Hebrew, the Dead Sea Scrolls is very accurate. And, and so uh, very much what you would expect because they believe in preservation. Also, book of Jeremiah, same thing. I covered that already. So in Jeremiah, uh, the original one was thrown in the fire. He reconstitutes one. Uh, now it's longer, kind of a picture of the Old Testament and then the New Testament. And then uh, that one gets, by God's order, thrown in the middle of Euphrates River. 
So to my knowledge, no one's ever, you know, dived down and found it yet. So, so it's out there in the middle of Euphrates somewhere, you know. And uh, so, but I still got Jeremiah in my Bible. So you either say, well, I got it or I don't. I believe I got it. And that is, that's why we call it a faith-based position, right? We believe that God preserves his word. Now, I also would say the evidence for that is in the words itself. There's no way a man could put a, there's no, the King James gang was smart, but they were not smart, smart enough uh, to assemble this Bible the way it's put together. There's no way. And they didn't think they were. So I got friends across the state line. They're like, well, the King James gang didn't even know it. Well, duh. How arrogant would that be? I wouldn't think they would. It's not the King James gang that thought they had the perfect word of God. They were in the process. It's the priesthood of believers that has discerned. There's not been a better English translation since. Plus, the doors were opened to the world with this particular translation. All right, so Wycliffe Bible, uh, Tyndale Bible, everyone, or not everyone, but many of us know Tyndale gave his life uh, and prayed. Uh, made, and he did have the uh, TR, by the way. And so uh, many, and he prayed, you know, Lord, open the kingdom of England's eyes. And then, of course, God eventually did in uh, 1611. But Coverdale Bible, Matthew's Bible, the Great Bible, and the Geneva Bible. The Geneva Bible is still used to this day among some. And, uh, and then the Amish still use a German, uh, uh, one of the German versions. Martin Luther's probably German going way back as well. And so Satan will always counter what God is doing. And so that's important to remember. Um, in, in, uh, and so three known events that would have prohibited the seventh version um, is, of course, Pope uh, Sixtus V, King Philip of Spain, and the Spanish Armada. And I've already alluded to this last week. But May 29th of 1588, that was a big day. So uh, Spain and the Roman Catholic uh, nation, with the most powerful navy at the time, attempts to overthrow England. I mean, they're ready to stop that thing um, in uh, 1588. And they began to cross the English Channel, uh, but they were destroyed by a sudden storm. And so God stopped them in their tracks. Seventy-nine ships and 17,000 men were lost. And so uh, last week I alluded to this uh, assassination attempt of uh, King James uh, I, who is the author of the King James, or not the author, uh, he's the authorizer of uh, the King James Bible. So he was definitely doing a political ploy uh, as I was mentioning last week, because he was trying to get the Protestants um, uh, and the Anglicans to come together. So the, I said, uh, not the Protestants, I mean, the Anglicans would be considered Protestant, but the, uh, uh, what are we, the Puritans, I should say. The Puritans, they were hanging fast to that Geneva Bible. And, uh, and so the, you know, he wanted the English standard. And he wanted also, he did not, wanna, he did not want Rome uh, to be involved uh, with any of it. And so the assassination attempt on King James, October 26th of 1605, so this is before the completion of the King James Bible, it's often called the gunpowder plot. And so while the king was addressing parliament, an anonymous warning came about five Roman Catholic assassins that were in the basement with a gigantic barrel of gunpowder. And of course, he was, his life was spared. And, uh, and of course, that was a, uh, an attempt from Rome to overthrow Great, Great Britain, which they, again, they celebrate this event to this day, kind of like their 4th of July. It's a major event in the history of the nation of Great Britain because they recognize the danger the country was in at that time. They don't all, all associate it with the King James Bible, but they know that that is, a, even though most people don't like King James, uh, they also don't want to be under the yoke of Rome. Uh, that's why it's a big deal when Tony Blair, several years ago, 
you know, he represented England so long in world politics, and all of a sudden after he gets out of uh, the prime minister position, he becomes a Roman Catholic. That was a big stink because he went from Anglican to Roman Catholic. And so he changed teams, and uh, he had so much power in England. So that was not looked on very highly to this day. All right, so um, the Roman Catholic Dewey Reams Bible, of course, comes out uh, one year in advance, the translation from Jerome's Latin Vulgate, um, which is a, corru a corrupt text that came from origin, an Alexandrian text. Uh, this version was not made so that people could read the Bible in English uh, by any stretch. Um, <clears throat> and it was, it was uh, written because of the English Bibles that were being uh, uh, distributed, and Catholics began to quit following Catholicism because they started reading the Bible. And what was in, in these Bibles uh, will war against Rome, for sure. Uh, the Roman Church uh, needed a Bible that supported their works-based doctrine and their mystical religion, uh, which is literally mystery Babylon religion. And so um, if you want to talk to somebody about reading the Bible and coming out of Catholicism, you can visit with Pastor Jeff Trude, and he'll give you all kinds of information about that. Um, and so then there's these events that led to King James' version of the Bible. Uh, Queen Elizabeth dies in 1603, um, and she never married, so there was no direct heir to the throne. And so her nephew, King James VI um, of Scotland, was proclaimed James I of England. That is probably, I think you should say, uh, James VI, he's, he was King Stuart of Scotland. I, I need to check that note there. I just know this for sure. He's King Stuart of Scotland, S-T-U-A-R-T. So he becomes King James of England uh, upon her passing. And so uh, on his way to the throne, he, approached, he was approached by a delegation of pastors with a list of grievances against the Church of England. And so uh, King James said that the grievances would be addressed at a conference <clears throat> um, uh, to be held on January 14th to the 18th of 1604 at Hampton Court. So uh, the four Puritans and nine bishops, nine clergymen, four professors from Cambridge and Oxford were invited to the conference. And at the conference, a man named John Reynolds made a request. May you, majesty, uh, may you majesty be pleased to direct uh, that the Bible be now translated such versions as are ex extent not answering to the original. So he asked for a, a basically a clearer Bible um, that would uh, match the original. Now, when he said original, what was he talking about? This is a good question. He was talking about the Greek text. So up until uh, the 1500s, I believe it was, the Byzantine, the, the Greek text had been had been preserved through the Byzantine. Um, you know, empire, even though the Orthodox didn't follow it. Um, and so the Latin was, was the predominant, um, you know, Bible for the Roman Catholics in Europe. But once they got a hold of that Byzantine, it may have been the 1400s, so my date's kind of messed, foggy on that. But once that Byzantine text started coming in Greek, man, their eyeballs were like, whoa, this is clear as a bell. Ding, 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 ding. And so they wanted their translation work to be done from that Greek text, which we all call today the received text or the Texas Receptus. Uh, that's what he's talking about, the originals being the Texas Receptus or the received text. So even among our fellowship of churches today, because we take such a, a strong view on the King James in English, you know, there's debate. Well, then should we translate from the received text, uh, which is still available? I have it on my computer. As a matter of fact, all your concordances are keyed off of it to this day, even on these perversions. 
because you can't key them off of, a, of an Alexandrian text and make any sense out of it. So all, all of your actual Greek key numbers are based on the received text of this day, by the way. And so, uh, at least in most of your Bible programs. So, um, but anyway, I'm, get, I'm getting off track. So the point being is that the, uh, the, the Bible um, that uh, King James puts together um, is, is based off of this Textus Receptus. And he doesn't really do it. The, this, of course, the King James guys do. Uh, the King James uh, Oxford translators, Westminster and, um, and uh, Oxford, but uh, <clears throat> and Cambridge. So all those guys get together and they put that Bible together. But today, um, you know, when we talk about translation, they're like, well, should we go from the English? A lot of the Bibles that we see produced, the Cheche was coming from a King James Bible, not because it's Heartland. Uh, we have nothing to do with the translation. Um, uh, well, we didn't. We do now. God's involved us a little bit. I won't get into that right now. But uh, we have helped with one of their checkers is one of the guys that, that received our Chichewa Bibles, which many of you has been in our church, Pastor uh, Palira. And so Pastor Palira is now checking the newest, the, uh, the, the, uh, um, the Old Testament. And uh, he's checking it from what he knows, the King James Bible, English, against the Chichewa language. Now, of course, anytime you're going from a language, there's a lot of things that don't line up and all that. So that's why the Holy Spirit of God has to work on that. And we're not, no one's going to say, this is the final in whatever language. The Holy Spirit of God's got to work all that out. Plus, languages are developing. And so God's got his hand on all of those things. And so the only thing we speak for is the English language. Having said that, if, if it does, it's not that you shouldn't know anything about Greek. Um, if you're going to be a Bible translator, uh, it, would be, it would behoove you to know not just Greek and English, but every language you can come across because there may be something in another language that you need to find from another language to even communicate in this other, in this other language that you're translating into. And so, um, so it's just an interesting thing. So when they had this Greek, these Greek manuscripts, it was like gold. Uh, and so a lot of the words that we come up with are transliterated, like baptism and, and, uh, and atonement. And, they, and they, to get the concepts across, they, they literally created words at one minute. That's where atonement comes from. And I think Tyndale came up with that and inserted it, and it stuck in the English language. So our literal language in English is developed off of the Word of God. I mean, it literally was, is based off of the Word of God uh, in, in great part. And so the largest written work in English is going to be the Bible for many years. I mean, when, when, in 1611. And so... Um, and so at that conference, uh, John Reynolds says, hey, we want to get back here and, and look at this original, meaning what we would call the Texas Receptus. So James recognized that England needed a translation that would unify the country behind a single English Bible. And before I move on, back to that Greek thing when, in uh, Latin. So I was up at the, the uh, Charles Spurgeon Library. Just, by, just so happened I pulled off a, I pulled off a book that, that he was reading. And, uh, or I got a quote, it was a quote that he had written. And uh, he, mentioned the, um, he mentioned this very subject, that when it came to originals, uh, he, dis, he, dis, he didn't say despise, but he goes, I, I, only, I only accept the Greek, meaning uh, he did not want the Latin translation. So Charles Spurgeon knew in the 1800s that there was a critical text line. He meaning to call it critical text, but it was a bad line from Latin, coming from uh, Jerome's Latin, and he didn't, want, he didn't want a Bible produced on that. And that's why he preferred the King James Bible himself back in the day in the 1800s. But anyway, uh, James recognized that England uh, needed a translation that would unify the country behind a single English Bible. So for him, it was a political move. There's, some people try to paint King James like he was this great 
you know, Bible-believing Christian, uh, that's highly unlikely. You know, I'm not sure about that. But on July 22nd of 1604, King James officially authorized the proposal uh, that the translation be made to the whole Bible as uh, consistent uh, or as consonant as can be to the original Hebrew and Greek. And this is to be set out and printed without any marginal notes and only to be used in all churches of England in time of divine service. And so he didn't want that thing circulating too far. So he says it can only be used in the churches, but this is what we're going to do with it. We're going to put it in the churches, and it's going to be a divine uh, book, right? And so on the same day, King James announced that he had selected 54 men to translate the new Bible, and the qualification required each man uh, was that he be a proven scholar. Uh, They used the literal translation method as opposed to the dynamic translation method, uh, which basically means that um, a dynamic equivalence um, is, would be what that is referring to, which is, well, you know, it says, uh, let me give you an example that would make sense in English. So, so they offered, let's say they offered, a, we know they offered lambs, right, for offerings. Well, today in America, we don't, really, we don't really have a lot of lambs running around, but we sure use a lot of cattle. So let's just change the word from lamb to cow because it translates into our culture. That's a dynamic equivalent. Right, so it's kind of the same thing, but it's different. But it'll make sense in that to those people. No, that's not no. Literally, if you don't understand what a lamb is, then someone will have to explain it. Right? If you don't know what a booth is in the Old Testament, then get out a concordance and go look it up. It's a tent, right? You got to figure that stuff out. It's a tabernacle. You don't know what a tabernacle is, right? So all of these. This was to be a literal translation. If we don't have a word for atonement, at one minute we'll come up with one. At one minute, so that's the thing we can come up with. We're going to do that. Yes, ma'am. Can I have you ask that on here? Because that's a lot. No, you're fine. Is this thing on? All right. Ask that again. So what is the difference between the Church of England and who helped come, you know, because of the Church of England, they decided to make the King James Bible and the Roman Catholic? Yeah. So what's the difference between the Church of England and the Roman Catholic? You mean in doctrine? Uh, Not a whole lot. Uh, you know, when King Henry broke off, he was very Catholic in his mindset, um, and the Anglican Church, uh, in some regard, was was very, uh, you know, they they still believed in church state and and a priesthood and all of the all of the trappings of a Roman um, mindset. But but to be to be fair, they also had much more influence on the Reformation. So they were not they were not eager to be Roman in that sense, and the Reformation had quite an impact. So, um, as you can see even by King James, he's like, this is a holy book, it's only going to be read in the churches, blah, 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 which that didn't end up happening. Tyndale had already, um, as we already saw, he had the Tyndale Bible and already had Lollards out preaching, and so the whole nation was ablaze with truth. And uh, and so there was, a, there was not as much patience uh, for the Roman or, or ignorance uh, in England, as there would have been in other places uh, where you didn't have a Tyndale and those proceeding. And so that also affects, as you read church history, and you read about the archbishops of Canterbury and such, these guys, some of them were saved. 
I really think some of them were like Luther, not all of them. And so a lot of these guys were, were serious about the truth. I think they were sincere. And an example of that in, in, in history that most of us can get our head around would be like John and Charles Wesley, for instance. So they're brought up in an Anglican home, very liturgical, sort of like anyone today brought up in a Lutheran home uh, or a Catholic home or whatever. And so they're all about the religion, but they're sincere. So they have it at Oxford, they start the Holiness Club. Well, none of that had anything to do with biblical being born again, you know, at the time. But it was all about, you know, they held to a King James. They didn't really think about the translation, but they were, they were, they were in the original languages, or they were reading the King James Bible, or what have you. And they're serious about um, asceticism, and they're, they're 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 fasting, and they're praying, and they're 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 doing everything they can to try to be holy and pure, and take the Bible literally. They were literalists. I mean, so they weren't. They didn't, it wasn't that they didn't honor the Word of God. They did honor the Word of God, and that's why they got saved eventually. Of course, the first to defect out of the Holiness Club and get saved, as I mentioned last week, was, was uh, uh, not jo- uh, George Whitfield. So George Whitfield came come from a more humble beginning. He wasn't raised in a church uh, setting. His mom was a barmaid, kind of owned a bar or a tavern at the time, so she kind of managed a tavern. But his oratory and his intellect was so awesome that they, he, he ended up there at Oxford and got in the Holiness Club. He was sincere when he got in the Holiness Club. Um, and then he realized he couldn't main, it wasn't working. And he ended up having a crisis of faith and getting saved by grace through faith. And then he, he preaches that thing. And he takes a more Calvinistic tone uh, if you read and hear it and you listen to him. But nonetheless, the Calvinists, the Protestants, uh, which really I would, as I've said before, would... I can make a strong case if they were prompted by guys like us who weren't really welcome in the club. Uh, and these guys, got a lot of them got saved. So that would include the Anglicans. Um, so the Anglicans were much more peppered and salted. Uh, salted would be a better metaphor since that's what we are, salt and light, with the gospel, the true gospel, uh, what, by far than a lot of these other countries and churches like Spain. Spain was, you know, you're going to get killed big time. I mean, they hated, they hate Christ, they hated Bible Christianity. And, uh, and so, and you could still get in trouble. Ended up in the 1880s. I mean, that's where the Inquisitions were still going on. So, the, uh, I think it was the 1860s. So, so that, that uh, so that not everybody that was a- Anglican was lost, and not everybody that was in, uh, you know, a lot of them been affected by Lollards or, or other things. They knew their history. And so, what you see is when you read like Fox's Book of Martyrs, John Fox was like a, a Calvinist, really, a, a reformer. And so these guys that we get romantic about, like Ridley, and, 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 and I do, I do, I get, I just wax, I could talk all day about these martyrs. Most of them would kill, I mean, they, they hated Baptists and tried to, and they did kill them. They put them at the stake, you know, 10, 15 years earlier. And then once the Roman Catholics got back in charge in, in England, guess what? They got put to the stake. And so they ended up facing the same death. And the sad thing is a lot of them were born again. And, uh, and so... Uh, because, because, and this is, it's hard for Americans to get their head around this, but you got to think about everything, the context. We were, we have all been born and bred in a system that separates the church from the state. So we're free. But this is happening, the preservation of your Bible is happening in a, in a monarchy. And so, uh, which claims its authority from God Almighty. So if all of a sudden you stand up and say, hey, by the way, you know, that isn't what the Bible says. You're not just going against their religious beliefs. You've just gone against the king. What's the, what's the, 
so now you're in trouble and you're going to die. And so a lot of these Anglicans were killing Baptists. And even, 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 not even, I mean, after all of that, even after our King James Bible, then you got a guy like, uh, uh, who's a, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress? John Bunyan. Um, you know, that dude, you know, he spent a lot of time in jail as a Baptist because, well, you know, he's trying to go along and get along, but you can only go so far. <laughs> and, and the Anglicans had no problems, you know, persecuting Baptists. Uh, also here in the colonies until se- after 1776. And so, uh, so that's why the American Revolution is so important. So I'm kind of go- getting ahead of myself. So, but that's a, good, that's a good question. So what's the difference between the Anglicans and the Catholics? Whereas the Catholics, uh, again, we talked about the Protestant movement. Um, a lot of people liken the Protestants to a football team, you know. So they're like the blockers and we're the running backs. And there's some truth to that. Uh, and so, or maybe we're the blockers and they're the running backs. But, but uh, there's a, no doubt a lot of these guys were born again. And, uh, and so they were into a literal interpretation, which automatically started to reform, reform that church away from Roman Catholic, Catholic mysticism and uh, a lot of the problems and trappings that come with uh, veneration of saints and all of those types of things. You're not gonna, you, you were not going to find that back in the time of, this, of 1611 as much as you would find it. Uh, as, and they were getting literate, so they could see all this in the Bible. They had a Bible in their language, and so they were able to, to understand all of that. Whereas before the printing press, a lot of that was mystical, and uh, and you weren't even going to, even if you wanted to know it, you weren't going to have a lot of opportunity unless you understood language and could read Latin and read, and if you even had a Greek New Testament, you know, and you didn't even have it in your own language, you know, it was all wrapped up in the Roman church, and they were keeping it under wraps. So, because knowledge is power. And, uh, and that's been pl- played out for sure. Does that answer your question? Okay, yeah, Ron. Yeah, you're right, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Ron's throwing a shout out because it is so true that there's been many that were not noted in history. And uh, as Hebrews 11 says, God throws a shout out to all those that were sawn asunder and, and uh, you know, not named and vagabonds in the earth and all that, you know, that, that were really suffering and, and nobody knew who they were. There's a lot of unsung heroes in history. Uh, a lot of the, especially getting you to the Reformation, a lot of those people didn't have the luxury of you know publishing because <laughs> they were running for their life as a matter of fact when we get to the the uh, spanish we mentioned that um, spanish armada but there was a bible translation uh the the equivalent to our text or to our king james bible in translation uh you know one of the reasons to this day i believe god's still working in the spanish language is because one of the, the kind of your king james translator kind of guys uh, that's of note, uh, was running for his life. He never finished his work because we, I think he got martyred or died or whatever. But, I mean, it wasn't easy to be a Spaniard and try to translate the Bible, you know, uh, especially literally. And so, you know, those guys had a hard go. And uh, praise the Lord, though, that God God preserves his word and he gets it where it needs to go. So on the same date, King James announced that he had those men, uh, the qualifications, let's talk about their qualifications. They were proven scholars. Uh, they didn't do the, the uh, they did literal translation, not dynamic. 
and the, and the meticulous work began about 1607. Huh? What do you mean? I didn't do 1607, did I? So... That was the last thing I, I was on. Huh? Right. That's where I'm at. So, okay. So this is the time when uh, the English-speaking missionaries took God's preserved word to the ends of the earth. And, uh, and so you have Philip Spinner, and you have this list, uh, you know, Herman Frank and Count Zinzendorf, right? He founded the Moravian Church. We would consider him, I would consider him a Lutheran. Um, the guy down the street here that has the charismatic IHOP church, uh, he's, he's fashioned his, uh, his church with a 24-7 prayer meeting after what the Moravians did under Count Zinzendorf. And uh, Zinzendorf had a good missionary model. Uh, they sent out men that, by faith, right, to Greenland was their first. They sent them as, uh, they were kind of bivocational. So they went out as grave diggers and, and uh, one-way trip, trip. You know, some people sold themselves into slavery so they could minister in the, uh, uh, in the uh, Caymans, or not in the Caymans, but in the, I think over here in the, uh, what do you call it down in the like Jamaica and what do we call that in the, yeah Car Caribbean islands that's right that's what I'm trying to think of and so uh, the Moravians were interesting that Richard Baxter George Fox which wrote Fox's Book of Martyrs John Bunyan who I mentioned he's the Pilgrim's Pro it says Pilgrim's Pride that should be Pilgrim's Progress Jonathan Edwards wrote Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God also there's a whole wing dedicated to him at Yale uh, a lot of people like Jefferson read him, Madison, because he, he noodled through a lot of what was going on with church, church and state coming out of an Anglican uh, background and then uh, having a Congregationalist end, uh, understanding the local New Testament church. He was working through a lot of all of that as well as the Calvinism. Um, and he died young. He was like 51 or 2 or 3, something like that. And then John Wesley, he ended up getting saved. Methodism be, is a thing because of John and Charles Wesley. Uh, George Whitfield is also noted as a Methodist preacher. So they, they went away from the Anglican church. And at that time, Methodists preached the gospel as we know it, by grace through faith without works alone, uh, or by grace alone and faith alone through Jesus Christ shed, uh, shed blood alone. So they, those guys were gospel preachers. All you got to do is pick up and read George Whitfield's um, stuff, and you'll see that. Uh, see, did I not? Where'd it go? I guess I don't have that. Okay, so... Um, anyway, so there's these names that uh, you guys probably have heard of. David Brainerd, uh, his biography inspired several missionaries. Uh, Samuel uh, Seabury, Christian Swartz, Henry Martin. Um, let's see, most of these guys, I don't know all of them. Some of them I do. There's a good long list. You can see uh, Adoniram Judson, of course, who um, ended up reaching uh, Burma. We're still using his Bible translation. That's what we still print and send over to Burma to this day. William Carey. Uh, the foundation for what we have in the Nepali text, the best text we have, comes through William Carey uh, that we're still using to this day. Not me, but uh, guys like uh, oh, uh, Thomas Kaufman and uh, those uh, Nepalis that have translated the most recent uh, Bible. We've helped promote that in Nepal, and they're using it uh, right now. Robert Moffat, George Mueller, David Livingston, of course, went to Africa and uh, buried his heart there in, in Zambia, where, here, uh, where Randy was at. Hudson Taylor, Jonathan Goforth in China, Hudson Taylor in China, the, the, the China Inland Mission, C.T. Studd, William Tennant, and there's actually many more. It's amazing. So uh, God's judgment is uh, in, in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 9. So let's go and 
have a look at that. He says, Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them to come and to worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. So they were people that believed that they were they had replaced the Jews. Replacement theology is still a big deal. A lot of people, a lot of of, of uh, churches believe that, which means they all the promises to Israel are given to them, which automatically uh, puts them in a, in a position to uh, want to start dabbling in politics and, and uh, country building and all of that kind of stuff and authority uh, in in the country uh, as well as social work, which social work's not bad, but uh, it's not the end goal. It's changing people from the inside out. They would uh, be delivered to the feet of Bible believers to worship the Lord. And, uh, of course, that has proved out uh, to be the case. The co- commendation and reward, uh, the church uh, period was diligently uh, kept uh, the, has kept the word uh, by spreading it across the world, and so God assures them that they will not endure the hour of temptation. Which, like, what is that? Um, I don't know. So, uh, no, the uh, of course the the uh, next th- that actually is a good question. I think you can use a couple of different things uh, as a you know what is the hour of temptation after the Philadelphian Church Age comes. Um, a, a complete assault on the uh, the truth of God's word uh, in 1900 forward. You also have um, uh, the uh, World War One and Two that comes to, to Europe, and uh, and so uh, a lot of people, and I would be in that camp, would uh, would 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 tie this to the departing from God's word, which does happen in 1900, and so it also. Um, I'm not sure historically what the hour of temptation was. Jeff, do you have any insight on that historically in the first century? No, I don't. Yeah, do you, Bob? Yeah, so I need to dig into that a little bit more. I'm sure there was a li- literal persecution probably from Rome that was upon them or some so- of some sort um, of, a, of a more of a secular nature, and, but I'm not sure what that was. So uh, John's aware of it, and he's writing to him historically. Um, they will receive a crown of righteousness, uh, because they patiently waited for his glorious appearing, Second Thessalonians three five, Second Timothy four eight, and uh, and they were ready for him at his coming at any time, and so were we, and so God resolve, <coughs> uh, they had God's resolve, and the saints uh, at this time period were unlike were unlike any saints before in that they reached the uttermost uh, like no other, and they didn't back down from the task, so. Uh, that was with, not without challenge. If you go back and study some of these very missionaries that are listed, uh, William Carey, Calvinism doesn't lend itself to uh, you know world evangelism very well because they um, they believe in um, God's sovereignty and if God was going to reach him, he'll do it and he doesn't need us to do it and all that. So William Carey fought against that hard and uh, eventually just went. And, uh, and so it was hard. The Baptists were the ones. The primary mission movement, by the way, uh, in the world has been Baptist. Adoniram Judson became one on the way to the field. I mean, Baptists are prolific to this day in uh, uh, in world missions because we take a literal view of the Bible, and we know that we literally need to get the gospel where it needs to go on time. And so, um, uh, not to take anything away, by the way, from the Moravians, which were also a wonderful movement, uh, and there's still Moravian churches all over, across the world because of it. All right, so they will receive a, a crown. Let's see, am I, where am I at? Okay, they will go down in history as pillars of the faith 
and they achieved great victory and will forever belong uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, uh, now the last thing is really important. And this is, uh, we can be a Philadelphian church in a Laodicean age. Now, there's many that will say you can't be because you just can't. But I would tell you this, I believe God can allow any church as a matter of fact, not only can he, I think he expects us. He has given us Revelation 2 and 3 in part, not just to focus on Revelation 3, uh, 7 through 11, but uh, to focus on each of the best and the worst attributes of all the churches and do our level best to use those to make sure that we're faithful to all of them and be aware of all the pitfalls that can come to any church. So certainly of all the churches that you find out of the seven churches, that the ideal church is the Church of Philadelphia. And so, uh, having said that, uh, we got to hold fast to the faithful word as we've been taught, and that is the key. The key is not just having the Bible uh, and, and a religion, but to believe the Bible enough to do it. There's all kinds of, it doesn't matter if you have a King James Bible if you don't do it, right? There's a lot of King James people breaking their arms, you know, patting themselves on the back because, man, we hold fast to the faithful word. Well, I got news for you. To whom much is given, much is required. Right? Just, just toting around saying, we've got the Word of God in English isn't enough. Now you've got to do it. Right? If you really believe that, you've got to execute. Right? And so it isn't enough to say you've got it. Once you've got it, you've got to do something with it. And that starts at D1. I mean, that's not, that's not just, oh, what, someday God's going to call me to be a missionary. If you really believe you've got God's Word, then you've got to move on it. Conversely, somebody who doesn't have a King James Bible doesn't know a, a, a lick of difference between a King James Bible and NIV or a a message Bible, but they open it up, and by God's grace, they believe it, and they're willing to trust it. I mean, God will work through that person because their heart's right, right? And he'll, he'll direct them to where they need to go as far as what Bible to read, but the heart is where it starts with the individual and their thirst to, to please God. And so I do thank God that in, my, in his providence, I got saved and plugged into a Bible-believing church. Um, it just so happened the people who witnessed to me were Bible believers, and they were acting on what the Word of God said, and I got saved, so voila, look how that happened. But, uh, you know, I did have people witness to me as well who weren't, didn't, didn't have a, uh, maybe a, a proper view of the Bible, and I'm appreciative of those people as well. And so we do have to be careful with uh, understanding that when we talk about the Bible, especially in our group. So we can be a Philadelphian church in the Odyssean church age. I believe that with all my heart. I've always believed that. I still believe it. Um, one of the problems was with trying to be a good Laodicean Christian, you know, is you don't find good Laodicean Christians. There's a few that overcome, uh, for sure, Revelation chapter 3, but you don't find, you don't see the church making it. You don't see that in Revelation 3 at the end with the Laodicean church. Uh, the church doesn't seem to pull together like some of these other churches. So it's an individual effort at the end. You got you to gotta make sure you're following the Lord. And by God's grace, he will preserve local, and he will, and he has local New Testament churches that hold fast to the faithful word as we have been taught. So, um, any questions on that? I have actually a lot more to say about Philadelphia, but I'm out of time, and I probably won't. I may touch next time, just to kind of wrap it up, I'll give you a little bit. I want to just touch a little bit more on the Reformation, which I would answer some of your questions with a little bit more specificity, specificity I should say, and, uh, and, uh, touch, and that's about it. Touch a little bit on, on the Anabaptist work during that time, and then I'll jump into Laodicea. So, all right. Well, thanks for coming tonight. It's been a slice of heaven now history is a history is a boring thing uh unless you really get a hold of it and it applies so i hope this is practical to y'all and it's not boring right because boring would be a bummer you don't want to be you don't want to be you don't want to be bored you want to you want to come away 
knowing that God has given you the Word of God. You have God's Word in your language, and, and uh, you can run with it, man. God has given it to you, and it is your turn. It's, it, the ball is in your hands, and uh, it's kind of a heavy thing to process. But, beloved, I'm telling you, and, if you're, and I'm talking to HBF people. If you're peering in on us from outside, we're glad that you're with us. But if you're an HBF person, I'm telling you, God has given us the ball. And not that we're better than anybody. We're probably worse. But at the end of the day, he's given us the ball. I mean, we got the ability along with, I mean, when we're not the only church, you know, in town, we're not the only church in America, we're not the only church in the world. But for some reason, God has blessed us. Uh, I mean, just this week, we got a donated, we needed a, we needed a, a, a forklift. Yeah, God donated a forklift. And God gave it to us. I mean, praise God. I mean, he just, he wants us to get the word where it needs to go on time. So don't for, don't forget, we're getting ready to do that as a group. And by God's grace, we'll encourage the churches. I hope we have a lot of living faith uh, participation uh, this coming week and uh, outside of HBF and community participation. But at the end of the day, uh, HBF has to pick up the ball. It'd be a shame to have a bunch of guests come in and do our work for us. You know, that'd be kind of messed up. We need, everyone needs to... Like if you're on a football team, you got to line up and hit the sled. You know what I'm saying? You don't. You can't just stay back and let everybody else hit the sled. You got to get in line. You got to hit the sled. Everybody just needs to get in line, hit the sled, and we'll just hit it until we get it where it needs to go, and we'll get it done. It'll be awesome. And uh, and so, uh, be here next this coming uh, uh, well really Saturday morning if you want to help us put things together. Bob's going to give a devotion at the men's breakfast, and then we're going to hit it and get it. And um, and then really it's on from there. Saturday Sunday we'll preach and then start assembling and. It'll go through Wednesday. It's going to be a good time. You're going to want to be here to hear all the speakers starting Sunday morning, Sunday night. Um, you know, the daytime, lunchtime, we'll have speakers out under the tent like we did last year. And we'll also have them every night. So it'll be a good time. All right. Amen. Let's uh, have a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father.